Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eunyoung Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. Hello, everyone. Today, uh, the topic that will be covered is ecological studies, and we have a very exciting guest. Uh, today, I invited Dr. Taru Manyanga. He obtained his PhD from the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa, and he's currently in a career transition, so it's very exciting. Welcome, Taro, to our podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lee. Um, I'm glad to be part of the program and part of uh, this class. Awesome. So I, give, I gave uh, my students a brief intro of who you are, but do you want to introduce yourself to the class? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, like uh, what Yuang said, uh, my name is Taru. Um, I am a physiotherapist. So my first love is physiotherapy. I trained at the University of Manitoba uh, in Winnipeg. After completing my physiotherapy degree, I worked uh, different uh, locations, first in private practice, then in hospitals, um, eventually transitioned into research. I got interested in research because when I was working, um, you know, I started seeing patients with uh, metabolic uh, conditions that were young. Um, mm. And there were a number of uh, other factors. You know, for example, there were uh, questions that I had in physio that we, didn't, we did not necessarily have uh, evidence for specific things we're doing. So... It, it sort of drove me to research. So then I went to do my uh, master's uh, in community health sciences at the University of Manitoba. Um, after completing the MSc, the, like uh, what you said, Young, I then moved to Ottawa, uh, completed my PhD with uh, Dr. Mark Tremblay, uh, based at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Um, and my PhD was in epidemiology um, I did uh, a study in Mozambique, uh, looking at uh, lifestyle behaviors and weight status in uh, kids between the ages of nine and 11. Overall, that's my trajectory of training. Um, generally interested in uh, being outdoors. Uh, uh, I like to interact with people, so I, I, I love to engage students. Um, I haven't had a great deal of time doing it, but when I have a chance like today, I think it's exciting to get to share some of my ideas, um, limited as they may be, but I think they may be also interesting to some of you. I think in a nutshell, that's me. Awesome. Well, thanks for the really nice intro, and I really like having you to this um, interview, but I'm sure our students are also um, happy to have you, and they appreciate what you're going to um, speak about, about ecological studies, and also other things as well. So yes, very excited. So can you tell us, so you talked about, you gave us a talk about your career transition, well, your trajectory so far and your kind of disciplinary training. And it sounds like you actually moved from practice into research. So it sounds like the opposite way than you know, people normally do, right? So you briefly said why, why you got interested in research uh, but can you expand a little bit why that was the case? Yeah, so, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, trajectory for me, for sure. So when I was um, uh, training as a physiotherapist, I was very curious about many, many questions. I asked a lot of questions to my professors, probably sometimes annoying them. <laughs> and for, for some of your students, this may be very true. But so I asked a lot of questions, but then I was lucky probably because one of my professors was doing research um, and he invited me to be an assistant one summer. Nice. And, and so I was a research assistant in his uh, wet lab. And so I got very curious about, you know, what he was doing, the questions he was trying to answer. And so that sort of planted the seed. Mm. And so when I finished physiotherapy training and I was working Initially in a private clinic, 
um, I started seeing young people, you know, in early 20s or mid, uh, mid-teens or, or even uh, early mid-20s or something like that, who had uh, significant uh, body weight problems, uh, mm-hmm. metabolic syndrome, mm-hmm. um, you know, comorbidities like diabetes and stuff like that. And so I was curious why that was the case. And because uh, the majority of these uh, young patients were First Nations, um, uh, you know, uh, patients, it, it drove me to think that the history of First Nations, uh, many First Nations communities in Canada is very similar to the history of our people. I grew up in Zimbabwe, which is a former British colony. And mm-hmm. so as is, was the case in, in Canada where indigenous populations were introduced to lifestyles and diets that were foreign to them a while mm-hmm. ago. And then only after a period of time, we started seeing consequences of non-communicable diseases in, in their populations. I was curious because we did, we were seeing the same thing in Zimbabwe. You know, we, we were colonized in the 1890s. And when I was <clears throat> younger, um, we, I, I rarely ever, if ever saw uh, people with uh, significant non-communicable diseases, but now it's sort of becoming more and more and more common. So naturally I was like, okay, so why is this the case? I would look for literature. Um, and so that was one part of it. The other part of it was just because I have a very curious mind. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I would ask myself, why do we do this technique? I mean, as, as kinesiology students will know, there are a lot of uh, modalities that we use so physio and, and kin are very similar. They are cousins, really. So mm-hmm. you do some technique and you ask yourself, why do we do this? You know, oh, we do it because it works. Okay, it works, but is there evidence that this actually works or is it a placebo effect? So a number of modalities that we use, although they work, there weren't really any significant body of literature that supported their use. So that was where my curiosity became more and more. And I was just sort of naturally... Uh, driven to to research that way. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, and you're right. There is very um, so physiotherapy and kin; those are really close programs. And actually, out of kin, lots of students pursue to become a physiotherapist. So um, I completely agree with that. And it is very interesting how you said that the the introdu- uh, introduction of new type of you know dietary habits and new lifestyles that could really impact human health, right? And one of your example, indigenous Canadian, indigenous people, um, you know, the the prevalence of diabetes is three times higher than the Canadian as a whole, right? So that's pretty striking. And that says something about what you said. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, so that to me was, like, oh my goodness, why is this? So, you know, you go into the literature and look at uh, people that are studying these things and you see that it is no coincidence, right? You know, you get introduced to a lifestyle, you get introduced to a specific diet that is not, you know, your genes have not interacted with these diets. And mm-hmm. over there's a lag, you know, probably 50 years, I don't know the exact number, but there's a lag in, in when you start to see consequences of those things. And so because of that myself, I was very curious. I was like, oh, probably this is also the same that we see in most African countries that mm-hmm. were former colonies of Western world or Western communities, where you see a lot of these conditions that, are, that were non-existent a few years ago, and now they are so prevalent. And, and you know, you, you, you start to question yourself and ask the questions, you know, so where are we heading? And f- unfortunately for countries like my, my, my country of birth, we don't have a lot of resources to deal mm. with these things, right? There's competing interests. There's other communicable diseases, unlike in Canada, where there's not a lot of communicable diseases. In, in Zimbabwe, there's a lot of communicable diseases, enteral diseases, and a lot of other things, right? So, Right. So it's not just about non-communicable diseases, but it's about everything. It's so about there's everything. that, yeah. So there is that healthcare burden, but at the same time, there's not enough resources. So I not guess a lot. Yeah, yeah, not a lot, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. Mm. So you said that in Zimbabwe and, and Mozambique, where you conducted some of your studies, what kind of um, 
non-communicable disease are uh, becoming more and more prevalent, would you say? Yeah, so for example, diabetes is becoming a big problem. Um, mm -hmm. Hypertension is becoming a big problem. Cardiovascular diseases, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, specific, certain types of cancer in Zimbabwe, for example, right now, there is an unbelievable uh, uptick in colorectal cancer among young men. I mean, we are losing young men in their you know, late 30s, early 40s. To me, this is like something very, very catastrophic and very scary, right? Mm -hmm. And the literature tells us, at least evidence shows that some of these cancers are related to diet and lifestyle, uh, especially, you know, insufficient mm -hmm. physical activity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's worrisome. Um, and, and so you, you see people shifting, right? Because, for example, most of when I was in elementary school, I walked to school. I ran to school. I, you know, that was natural and normal. The majority of kids <laughs> do these sort of things. But now it's fashionable. It's more desirable. It's a class status to be able to, you know, be driven to school. So kids mm. are much more interested in getting, being, you know, driven to school. Most people have moved from rural areas to urban centers where there's, there's so much population. There's so many cars it's not workable, right? So kids are being, you know, driven to school and that reduces the amount of time they are spending physical activity. They're eating a lot of junk food and the opposite of here, junk mm -hmm. food is quite expensive over there. It's associated with wealth. So people want to eat it. Right? Nice. So, yeah. it's, so it's sort of this oxymoron of, you know, these little things that we don't think about a lot. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are consequences to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I just commented that it's nice, but actually it's not nice. So like, you know, junk food chains like McDonald's will be considered as, you know, high social class food. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's, very, it's very concerning. And, but but to, your, to, your, to your credit, in, in these uh, places in Mozambique and, and in, in Zimbabwe, I can't tell you how many people, professors included, I mean, people that know would be like let's go to kfc and i would say no i think you know let's cook you know we have very mm -hmm. no it's classy let's go to mcdonald's and let's go to you know it's because it's if you are seen eating in mcdonald's or seen eating in kfc it's mm -hmm. associated with class and unfortunate bit is that people generally uh you know where there's not enough resources people are interested in showing off and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have enough um, uh, food or something like that, and that's the 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 unfortunate part of it. Yeah. So you know, those lifestyle factors, so like behavioral risk factors, really come into play. But at the same time, it's like the environment and you know the the introduction of of new food and new industries getting into the country really makes um, makes it worse. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Uh, industrialization yeah. has its benefits, but also has its uh, demerits, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Westernization is, you know, in some ways very good because we can move from one place to the other. We mm -hmm. can move goods from one place to the other in a very good way, but then mm -hmm. it also has the, you know, the unintended consequences of reducing habitual um, utilitarian physical activity, which is the most of what we do. You know, mm -hmm. very, very rarely do you, except in merger, urban centers do you have people exercising you know like exercising it's something that we don't do in rural areas right people do that when they're doing chores they go to the fields to farm to you know till the land fetch firewood mm -hmm. that sort of thing but mm -hmm. when you take that away and people are using cars instead of walking to schools you know people are using uh, these sedentary types of commute commuting it takes away and it creates uh, uh, issues. So, mm -hmm. wow, yeah. So, just before getting into getting into the ecological study design, which is the main topic for today's talk, but I just want to know what's going on with COVID nineteen right now in Zimbabwe. <sighs> yeah, it's a scary situation because, mm -hmm. um, like I said at the beginning, there is competing interest. So, COVID is a big, big problem. Mm -hmm. um, we have significant cases and uh, deaths. The unfortunate bit is because the surveillance mechanism and the tracing mechanisms are terrible at best. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what is being reported certainly is under-reporting. Um, there's no, there's no equipment. There's no PPE. There's inadequate uh, support to healthcare facilities. So you know people can't access the hospitals. If they access the hospitals, there's not enough um, treatments. There's mm-hmm. you know no therapeutics and no preventative measures. And the challenge, the biggest challenge is the economy is mostly in informal. So when people are asked to stay home, like in a lockdown situation, they can't because they have to go and sell tomatoes and, and mm-hmm. or to get this and that. And there's no social safety nets, right? In Canada, you can go and get a specific amount of money if you can't work because of COVID. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that. So you have to survive. Right. Um, if you have five kids and you can't go to work, you have to survive somewhere, somehow. And so people break these uh, lockdown uh, and so then they spread COVID. And mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest conversation is, can I die today of hunger or can I die, possibly die in two weeks of COVID? What is the choice, right? So right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible situation. So um, it had the, the, the saving grace is that when COVID hit here, it wasn't as bad for a while. So these countries had a big, you know, good start, but mm-hmm. still it's, it's not good enough. They don't have vaccines. They don't have, um, there's also a very significant problem of corruption and misuse mm. of resources. So mm-hmm. even when funds are allocated or donated, they don't necessarily go to where they're supposed to be going and, you know, not to be political, but, that's the reality yeah. of, of most of these places, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, well, every single talk that I do or almost all become political. So that means that, you know, when we talk about applications of epidemiology in public health, um, we talk about how political stance or political climate can really influence the decisions for public health and resource allocation. That's, you know? yeah. So, yeah, so you made really good point. And... Yeah, it's really even hard to hear because, you know, every with every disease, it doesn't matter, non-communicable, communicable, you know, with COVID-19, for example, the, the reason why COVID-19 incident got a really steep increase in lower and middle income countries is because of the traveling. Those who are able to travel, they got into a different country where people are more isolated um, and they, you know, spread, spread the infection. And, you know, those countries are the hardest hit because they don't have resources. And it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, countries who can, individuals in the countries, in, uh, countries with enough resources, they provide resources there. It's, it's right because we are busy taking care of our own people so yeah it's very unfortunate unfortunate yes yeah yeah so okay let's get into the business so the (laughs) ecological study design um so you know we talked about some of the issues like health issues uh at a global level, and there is a reason for that. So can you tell us what ecological study design is and what that entails? Okay, so yeah, so ecological studies really, um, if you think about the hierarchy of evidence, um, you know, you know the, the higher you go, of course, is, yeah, the, tri- the pyramid or the triangle, whichever you want to prefer, the higher you go, the more weight you put on the evidence. Ecological studies are sort of, at the base of the pyramid, sort of at the beginning um, uh, of the pyramid. So um, they are studies that we use to collect data at a population level, right? So sometimes we don't have the access to individual data, or we Mm -hmm. don't have the luxury to do individual data. Uh, For example, um, in cases like, you know, you want to know what is the effect of uh, consuming this on the welfare of the country X, and you want to get data quickly. So you can make a lot of assumptions based on commercially available data, for example. You can prescribe and say, you know, the economics of Canada, and you associate that to child welfare, for example, or some kind of health outcome. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're doing ecological studies, the unit of measurement is not the individual. It is a group or a population, right? So mm-hmm. you may have data that were collected as a, either as an administrative data or commercial data or whatever data, and then you are aggregating this data and using the group or a country or a village or a city as the unit of measure. And then, and, and, and so you, you use that as the point of measurement. Of course, you can see how that can be a good thing because if you want something quickly, it's cheap, it's inexpensive, these data are probably always already available so you don't spend a lot of time looking for the data or, right? But the mm-hmm. problem is there, you know, you can't then attribute that data specifically to an individual and we can go into detail a little bit later about what that, that you know, problematic. Uh, but at the same time, because there are correlational studies, so you are making an association between a health outcome or something or an outcome of interest to some phenomena. Because there are correlational studies and you are using population or a group as the unit of measurement, the problem is they can, we can't control for confounding variables, you know, these variables that you have not measured or you were not able to control for. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is one of the bigger problem. Uh, so that's one of, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what uh, ecological studies are. There are advantages and disadvantages which we can get into uh, as we go along. Mm-hmm. Wow, that that's a really great description and so many important points are already made. So students are um, already being introduced to the hierarchy of evidence and also confounding the concepts of confounding and potential bias, causation, versus association versus correlation. So I think it's it's gonna be a nice transition and actually your your um, what you just spoke will really help them to understand. So um, I guess an example of ecological study design is then, for example, looking at alcohol consumption by country. Yes. So let's say in Canada, uh, 20% of individuals consume alcohol every day. This is not based on any data. Um, yeah. yeah. And in Zimbabwe, uh, 10% of people consume alcohol every day. So then that will be the unit of measurement will be at the country yes. level. Yes. I see. Yes. Yeah, so, so, uh, so you can use the country based on the data that are available at a very a macro level, right? You know, 20% mm-hmm. of Canadians drink alcohol every day. 15% mm-hmm. of Zimbabweans drink alcohol every day. 5% of, uh, you know, English people drink alcohol every day. Uh, 2% of... No Australia. way, true. English people <laughs> would drink, like, way more. <laughs> okay. I did that on purpose. But, but the point I wanted to make is we can look at the data and say, oh, yeah, you know, generally this is the trend. We can see some sort of idea Mm-hmm. But it can be misleading in the sense that there could be specific individuals that are really, really, really. Right. So based on that data, me making assumption, oh, English people don't drink. I shouldn't yeah. ask them to go for beer. Yes. That yes. would be a wrong. <laughs> that would be wrong assumption. Yeah. Okay. So the issue of um, the, the problem with uh, ecological studies specifically is this issue of something called the ecological fallacy, which, which, which I think some students might have heard. Mm-hmm. It's where you can't attribute a phenomenon that you observe at a population level to an individual because you have not observed that in, you know, for cause and effect to happen, mm-hmm. both the exposure and the outcome have to have happened in the individual, right? Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to observe it at the individual level. Right. If we're saying Canadians, 20% of Canadians drink alcohol, or if we're saying, for example, uh, health-related quality of life in Canada is associated with, well, not in Canada, health-related quality of life is associated with the country's level of income or human development index, right? Mm -hmm. We have made that assumption based on the population level. Right. The the, the challenge is individual health-related quality of life has not been measured at an individual level. So we can't attribute the fact that because Canada in general has a high income or high HDI, and generally the people on average say they are happy, you know, they are happier or their health quality of life is better, mm-hmm. that can't be for everybody. 
right? So we cannot make assumption based on ecological data that all Canadians are happier yes. than, or they show better quality of life than anyone else in the world. Yeah, exactly. Ex yeah. That's exactly the point, you know. So we have to be a bit careful when we're using ecological, uh, ecological study data, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because it's correlational. It has not been, uh, you know, confounding, confounding factors can be there. Uh, there is a significant risk of uh, uh, the ecological fallacy, mm. um, and and we can't, so you know, because there's no data at individual levels, we can't ascribe causation, right? So there is no direct if you know effect in causation. We mm -hmm. can just make associations at a higher level, and that, although mm -hmm. this is a good study because it can be hypothesis generating. Right. If what we does want that to mean? that means that means that if you have you, you know you want to find out if if something makes sense, right? You have an idea. You have an idea that this could be. You just want to you just want to see what what may be the reason why something is happening, mm. and so you do an ecological study. You figure out that there is some association between. Uh, like we were saying, health-related quality of life and, mm -hmm. you know, country's economic status. So then you have an hypothesis. Okay, does, is it real that if a country has a high HDI, generally people have a higher uh, quality of life? That's a hypothesis based on the global data that you have. Mm -hmm. And then you can then do specific studies to either prove or disprove that hypothesis, uh, that, mm. that uh, assertion, to so to speak, or that idea or that you know yeah so then i guess building on that ecological evidence we can actually collect data from individuals to confirm or reject the the hypothesis that we tested using ecological studies fantastic yeah so it helps us as researchers mm -hmm. it helps us to, to to develop targeted questions Right. It gives us so instead of just, you know, you and me deciding, you know, let's just go and look for this question. Right. You know, go fishing. We can spend a lot of time <laughs> fishing for questions. If we did an ecological study, it will sort of almost like give us a roadmap. This mm -hmm. is this is something that is there. You know, uh, I, I know we will talk about global metrics uh, initiative later mm -hmm. on. But, you know, the study that, uh, that, that uh, I, I, I was involved in, which is an ecological study, you know, we generated a lot of possible hypotheses or questions mm -hmm. uh, that then specific researchers can go and, and examine, right, and get more data on. Yeah. Yeah. So just to summarize about weaknesses and strength, strength of, of ecological study design, so um, advantages that include that uh, we can generate hypotheses and it can create kind of a research roadmap in terms of which approach we can take or which um, assumption we can test or it's valuable to test. Um, and also we can develop, yeah, so similar to that point, we can develop targeted questions and we can just do some kind of exploration. Of course, it's not, we are not fishing around, but you know, we can conduct on a certain um, exploratory research and see if we can get something interesting out of that, that we can continue to um, researching using different study designs. Yes, and, and also adding on to that, another advantage is that it's very cheap and easy to conduct. Right. So, you know, where in places where there are no resources, this is a very easy way of getting data that can be useful. That So so if you don't have a lot of research money, you mm -hmm. can do an ecological studies. It helps you to generate some ideas of what questions are important to ask. Then you can use your smaller resources to target whatever information or assumptions or assertions you have made based on ecological data. Right, and global organizations such as the United Nations, World Health Organization, uh, World Bank, they provide lots of data um, yes. and, and those are publicly available. So that's a really good point. So cheap and easy, um, so convenience um, associated with conducting 
ecological study. Um, and some of the disadvantages include that we cannot infer causation because the data that we have is correlational. Mm -hmm. And the unit of measurement is at the population level, um, not at the individual level. So we cannot um, make assumptions based on the data that we have or based on the result. So we have to make sure that we don't commit ecological fallacy. Yeah. Um, and also we are not able to control for confounding factors. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we covered confounding factors. So, but what are the examples of confounding factors? Uh, so, so in generally a confounding factor is a factor that could have an influence or could affect the relationship between A and B, uh, but you haven't really accounted for it when you're doing a study, right? Mm -hmm. An example could be that we are looking at uh, ecological data at a population level, but certain individuals have specific characteristics that may make them more susceptible to something. An example could be if age was a, a factor that could influence a certain behavior, and mm -hmm. we don't have data on the age, ages of people that we are making an assumption about, mm -hmm. that could be a confounding issue, right? You know, um, there are the factors that are characteristics of people that we would want to control for mm -hmm. if we were doing collecting data at an individual level. Right. Um, so, that, so that when we know, as an example, if we are doing, we want to check health-related, you know, quality of life. Mm -hmm. you know, we are not making assumptions without knowing that the people that are in this study or the people, the population that we are you know, discussing, maybe there are people that have depressive symptoms. Maybe there are people that have uh, the generally sort of self-selecting, you know, people that like to do physical activity or that like to do, you know what I mean? If we right. don't know that because we didn't collect this data at an individual level, but we're making assumptions at a group level, those yeah. factors that are individual can be confounding. Right, so basically, because we are not controlling all the available, and of course it is impossible to control for all available confounding variables in research, but when we are not even able to control just one confounder, then you know the results that we produce is likely um, have higher chance to, to have an error. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's very good to know. So strengths and weaknesses of ecological study design covered. Um, yes. Okay, so let's get on to the example of ecological studies. So you mentioned the global matrix. So can you explain what the project was about and how ecological study design was used for the project? Okay, great. So there is an initiative called the Global Matrix. Uh, there's an organization called Active Healthy Kids uh, Global Alliance, mm -hmm. which is um, an organization of uh, researchers and academics around the world, led by uh, Mark Tremblay from, from Ottawa and a, a number of uh, leading scientists and, and luckily uh, yourself is involved in this project. Uh, yes, <laughs> I am also involved. So uh, what happens is uh, countries that are interested uh, join. Uh, generally, the idea is to look at indicators of physical activity among kids and adolescents in countries that are participating. So mm -hmm. these indicators, uh, they are specifically selected, you know, based on their relationship, or at least the, the, the idea that we know that they are, we can, we can uh, look at them as a measure of how active or inactive kids are around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the project has been going on since 2014, um, when only 15 countries, I believe there were, that, that met in Toronto um, and developed what is called a report card. And what that is, is just a report based on data from each country about physical activity. So, so we collect data, we collect studies in, in, in a specific country that report on specific indicators of activity, for example, overall physical activity, participation in sports, mm. uh, amount of time people as kids are sitting down, active transportation, so use of active transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lifestyle behaviors, but there mm -hmm. are also influencers of lifestyle behaviors. 
sources of influence could be family and peers. Mm-hmm. It could be community environment. It mm-hmm. could be the school environment. It could also be policies that are designed by government to either facilitate physical activity, right? Mm-hmm. So these report cards are designed to have a systematic way of gathering data. So mm-hmm. every country that joins to participate. So there's been three that have been done. We are at the moment in the process of uh, starting the fourth one. Mm-hmm. So these countries develop these report cards. The indicators, like I said, are de- developed after consultation with uh, scientists and academics around the world. Uh, the last time there were 10 indicators of physical activity that were selected, mm-hmm. uh, five lifestyle behaviors, four lifestyle behaviors, four sources of influence and physical fitness, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we did, uh, when we do these projects, we then gather data country-specific data. Each country produces a report card Mm -hmm. that's based on data from that country. So that Mm -hmm. was the process of developing that report card is like data synthesis, basically. Some countries use systematic reviews, some countries use narrative reviews, but Mm -hmm. it's a basic combination of hand searching, searching great literature, systematic way of finding uh, data. Whatever data you have about these indicators, Mm -hmm. you use it to grade each indicator. And so mm-hmm. the grades are from A to F, A being, you know, you're doing very well and the A can be assigned uh, a percentage, right? So uh, if you are, if you're, if for example, the prevalence of sedentary behavior is 80% in kids. So then the grade for sedentary behavior is, you know, it's a bad grade. So I, I used a, a, wrong, <laughs> a wrong example. Yeah. If, if active transportation, if 80% of the kids in a country are using active transportation, so they get an A in active mm-hmm. transportation. If only, if only 50% are overall physically active, they get a C in active transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if the majority of kids are spending more than two hours watching TV, so they get a failing grade on secondary behavior, something like that. And that's how, yeah. So, so... Just to summarize, Global Matrix is a comprehensive uh, kind of evaluation of uh, physical activity and also physical activity related measures. So that includes five different physical activity related lifestyle factors and the other five on influences. So about the environment. Um, Yeah, and I guess each country collects uh, their own data on each indicator. So that could be based on individual level beta, data. Yeah. Then what we do as a group, so as a global metrics group, we collect country specific data and we aggregate them and we create ecological data and we do analysis. Exactly. So, so here comes the, 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 the example of how these data are used. Once each country has collected data, Zimbabwe, Canada, US, uh, Brazil, you know, the last one, there were 49 countries. Mm-hmm. Once all of these countries have collected data, we then say, okay, are there patterns? Can we, can we make any sense of these data? Is there some pattern of something that, that we can use as, a, as researchers to figure out something that is happening that's common among all these kids? Mm. So the paper that, uh, that we're discussing today, we, we grouped these countries into uh, common using one common thing. We use the Human Development Index. So mm-hmm. we then decided, okay, let's see for all the participating countries, let's see if we group countries that are lower to middle income countries, right? And then countries that are higher middle income countries and then mm-hmm. countries that are very, very high HDDI, right? Can we find something common? So we grouped, in our case, in the paper that I'm talking about, there were nine countries, six from mm-hmm. sub-Saharan Africa and three from Asia, mm-hmm. whose HDI or Human Development Index uh, fell into this category that we were interested in. Mm-hmm. And once we had those report cards, we then grouped their uh, report cards using each indicator. So we would say, let's look at active transportation. Mm-hmm. What grade was it in Zimbabwe? What grade was it in Botswana? What grade was mm-hmm. it in Bangladesh? So we converted the grades into interval uh, data, and then we use that interval data to run correlation uh, correlation matrices, and mm-hmm. we were able to look at was you know physical activity related to 
as an example, the Guinea in the Guinea coefficient, or was mm -hmm. uh, physical activity related to uh, human development index, or mm -hmm. a, so the the you know different kind of country specific uh, measures. Mm -hmm. okay. And so so that's ecological data because we are using a report that has been developed from each country, even at the country level. It's not individual data. They are taking studies by, so these studies may be on individual data, but these studies have now been synthesized into a report. Right. And then we take that report that could include 20 studies as an example. Maybe in mm -hmm. Zimbabwe, there were 20 studies that right. produced a report card. In Bangladesh, mm -hmm. maybe there were 15 studies that produced a report card. In India, they probably had 50 studies. Mm -hmm. And then we're taking that report card to combine it into one manuscript based on nine countries. Right. And so the unit of measure there is no longer the individual, not even it's, it's the, 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 the country itself, right? Right, well, yeah. So looping back to what we discussed in the earlier conversation, so ecological studies, it produces um, uh, population level data and and it could like global matrix it's based on the individual data but because now after gathering all the data from different countries we are using the country level data so that becomes ecological studies and also it makes sense that you know this ecological study especially global matrix initiatives it's really good for hypothesis generating Yes. Because, yeah, based on human development index, we divide the countries into three different groups, low to middle, high and very high. And we were looking at things in more detail. OK, what's going on in this low and middle HDI index countries? What's going on here? Let's see um, and why their physical activity is high. And whereas in very high income countries, physical activity is low, but there is more infrastructure. And yeah. in low and middle income countries, there's not enough infrastructure, but kids are active, like what's going on? So that makes total sense. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so it was it was exactly that, that we were interested in looking at countries that could have a lot of things in common. So we deliberately made these countries more homogeneous. Mm. And mm. interestingly enough, doing that actually showed a lot of interesting patterns, right? So mm -hmm. in countries with low to, to middle income, in middle HDIs, we found that their sources of influence, infrastructure was terrible. They had terrible gra grades mm -hmm. for policies, they had bad grades for communities and environments that were not as supportive. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, their lifestyle behaviors were very good. They, mm -hmm. they, they were active, they used active transportation, they were not as sedentary. Uh, they participated, they were physically fit. And so what, what you could gather from that is the fact that even if, they, even if it's more desirable to have good infrastructure, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean if you build it, they will come, right? Mm. And, mm -hmm. and you, know, you know, sort of converse to that, it doesn't mean that where there's nothing, kids won't play or kids won't be active. Mm -hmm. It just means in some cases it's necessary for these kids to walk because that's the only means of transportation. Right. Or, or people like kids are playing outside because they don't have recreational facilities that they mm -hmm. can use. So they are playing outside and that becomes an activity on its own. Mm. So in terms of future implications based on the kind of study um, you know, in low and middle income countries, because walking is the only way that kids can move around. But, you know, as you know, with industrialization and urbanization, we are, we, you know, we cannot go backwards, right? So, you know, there will be more infrastructure and there will be, you know, more cars, etc. So what can we do to keep the activity level um, at, at the higher level. Like Western countries, we are, you know, apparently failing to yeah. keep our kids active and the resources we have <laughs> do not really yeah. work. So yeah. what do you say about that? So I think this is a very good point, very, very good and important question. Mm -hmm. We in lower, lower, lower uh, income countries are learning the wrong lessons. 
Uh, and this is the scary part because mm-hmm. we are learning the bad habits that Western countries or developed countries or high-income countries have learned. Mm-hmm. We are learning that sitting more is desirable, which is not. Mm-hmm. Walking less is desirable, which it is not. Mm-hmm. And so at a policy level, what these data are telling us is that although we are still doing well in low-income countries, we mm-hmm. are heading towards the wrong direction. So this mm-hmm. is the time to correct it, right? So mm-hmm. countries can look at this data and say, huh, you know what? We are doing better, but not that great. So why don't we preserve uh, the, these behaviors that we have and mm-hmm. celebrate them as part of our heritage? Mm-hmm. So instead of getting kids to think that is more desirable to, to mm-hmm. take a bus or to go on a car, mm-hmm. why don't we promote uh, active transportation? You know, instead of video games and, and smartphones mm-hmm. for every child, why don't we explain to kids that there are traditional games outside playing with their, you know, with each other outside is actually more desirable mm-hmm. um, and, and maintaining the idea that when they go to do their chores, it's actually more desirable than, um, mm-hmm. so at a policy level, that to me is the implication of it. Uh, secondarily, we can use this data and go specifically to countries that are, in similar, what we found, for example, was that there were very common patterns of things that were happening that were good, but also things that were not good. So mm-hmm. we could use, instead of this being a problem for Zimbabwe, for example, if I went to the politicians in Zimbabwe and said, you know what, our policies suck, uh, you guys need to do better, mm-hmm. it can be an issue for me. But if I went there and I said to them, you know what, there's something common between Zimbabwe and Bangladesh and India. It is the mm-hmm. fact that our policies for physical activity suck. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, they are no longer as defensive, right? They mm-hmm. can identify oh, with another country and they don't look at it as, you know, you are pointing a finger at us and so you are accusing us. They right. look at it as what is the opportunity for us to get better, right? Right. So that framing, uh, when you interpret or convey the result, uh, research results, is really important. Especially yes. when approaching country leaders or yes. policymakers who have big egos. Yes. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Um, okay. So, from a different angle, what can we do in very high income countries? What can we do? Because it seems like we have really good resources, um, you know, safe space for play, and, and, you know, we have good urban planning, but still, kids are not active. Like, what can, but we cannot really get rid of all those things and see what happens, right? So what can we do in very high-income countries then? Yeah, so, so the advantage of doing, so I go back again to the advantages of this ecological data that mm. because it includes countries from low-income countries which are doing well in these lifestyle behaviors, high-income countries can learn, right? What are these things? Why are these countries doing so well? Well, one mm-hmm. of the things is that generally in low-income countries, kids have independent mobility. They oh. get out and they walk around, they go to school. You won't see a parent walking with a you know, 10-year-old going to school. They are with their friends. They walk mm-hmm. to school, they come back to school. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, you know, I, I know this is a bit controversial, but I think one way is to allow kids to be kids. You know, let kids play, don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't ban tag is what happened somewhere in, in, you know, in some city that I won't mention by name. Mm-hmm. You know, don't ban things that are encouraging kids to be outside, to play, to do. Yes, safety is important. Yes, it's important to uh, be careful. But risky play is part of childhood. Mm. You know, allow kids to be kids. But Mm -hmm. also at the same time, instead of policymakers being reflexively defensive, if we present this data and say, look, look at kids in Zimbabwe, look at kids in Mozambique, look at kids in uh, China or in, in not China, you know in because um, uh, China was not part of this group Bangladesh mm-hmm. India mm-hmm. and Nepal mm-hmm. they are out they are active can't we use that and see some change so we can pilot you know allow a certain community to have kids do kids things walk to school mm-hmm. or you know drive kids and leave them you know drop off point. Mm-hmm. and work with them to school and see if that changes, right? So, yeah. so from, from that point, point of view, I think high-income countries can learn. The other thing, in, in, you know, quickly is that 
it doesn't necessarily mean that when we build infrastructure, kids will come. You know, the infrastructure has to be built with the idea that it may help, but it will not solve this problem forever. We right. have to we have to do a wholesale. Yeah. Um, so physical environment is really important, but social changing the social cultural environment where safety is the best and keeping kids inside is the best way to uh, raise our children in a safe environment. All those things, of course, it's more complicated than, you know, we can make just one uh, clean statement, but just let the kids to be kids and exactly. let them play. Exactly. Yeah. And the rest is our adult's job to ensure that they're in a safe environment, but they're, um, they have some independency and autonomy. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for a really important message. And I think we learned a lot about ecological study design. So um, I, I, I think it's a good time to end this interview. But before we do that, do you have any advice to our students at Queen's? Well, um, the, the, the only thing I would say is because uh, I talk too much, I'll try and be very brief. Oh, no I think what I would say is enjoy what you're doing, uh, learn. You know, you never know what, uh, what you would want to do. This, this uh, course that you're taking, I think, is very important because it introduces you to epidemiology and to public health. And so uh, learn, but do as much as you can to also enjoy the learning process. Uh, for people like me who have started and unconventionally so started as a physiotherapist, went into research, got a postdoctoral fellowship, declined it, went back to practice physiotherapy, and now transitioning into an academic position, although very unorthodox, if that is your path, don't let anybody discourage you from pursuing it because not everybody's going to take the cookie cutter road. So as kinesiology students, the, the most of you may be thinking, I wanna to go to physio school, I wanna to go to medical school, I wanna do, if that's not for you, if research is where your heart is, follow it. You know, if, if completely unrelated program is what you think is good, do it and follow it, follow your heart, ask questions and don't be afraid to fail. It's only through failure that we learn the best. Wow. Thanks for the advice. That helps me too. Don't be afraid to fail. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Manyanga, for a nice, really nice talk. Um, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for coming in today. Thank you very much and have the best. <laughs>